Can we experience Stoic joy? Why has there been a dramatic change in how we perceive Stoicism? And how can the ancient philosophy reduce stress and anxiety as well as help us achieve our goals? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You're listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with William B. Irvin, professor of philosophy at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, and author of seven books, including The Stoic Challenge and A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. We'll be discussing useful tactics from Stoicism, its comparison with Zen Buddhism, as well as how it can help us deal with death. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, on to finding stoic joy in our modern world. Now, in your previous book, uh, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, you used the term stoic joy, which I feel like to many modern audiences comes off as a contradiction of some sort. How is the modern perception of Stoicism a departure from the ancient philosophy? Well, uh, most people, when they think of Stoics, think of lowercase s Stoics. And those are people who just seem to be immune to pain, or if they suffer it, they keep it to themselves. And they're just uh, tight-lipped about um, their emotional state. And, um, and that's, that's kind of the conception and the interesting thing is that the Stoics themselves, that is Stoics with uppercase S, uh, weren't Stoical in that sense of the word. In fact, they seem to be people uh, very much open to the delights the world ha- had to offer. Not necessarily to the pleasures, but to the delights, which is a subtly uh, different thing. So um, they uh, simultaneously did their best to enjoy the life they were living while preparing for that life to take a turn for the worse. And that sounds like paradoxical behavior, but in fact it's part of a a strategy, a psychological strategy that they seem to have mastered. I suppose a way to do that is you think about what you have versus what you don't have. So you, you take what you have not for granted. Yeah, most people go through life thinking about what they don't have, wishing that they had it. And it's a a recipe for for misery. The Stoics did the opposite of that. They thought about what they had and thought about how it would feel to lose it. And thereby came to appreciate very much the things that they they had. Uh, It's a process called negative visualization. And there's an important clarification there. They don't uh, fixate, they don't obsess over how things can go wrong, because that's that's a recipe for a miserable existence. What they do instead is allow themselves to have what I call flickering thoughts about what they have and how what they have could um, disappear. Uh, Everything you now have will disappear. I'm not trying to scare you, but that's the way the world works. Things go away. And so then the the trick is 
while they're here, while they're with you, you enjoy them to the fullest. So you end up with this group of Stoics who, in fact, should be depressed and sullen and everything else, if you think in the lowercase s uh, sense of the word. And, and in fact, it, in the modern times and in the ancient world as well, are probably some of the uh, most easygoing, um, delighted people you will find. So why did it change from the uppercase Stoicism to lowercase Stoicism? Why have we departed so much from this type of Stoic joy? Uh, people simply lost track. That people stopped reading uh, the Stoics. The Stoics fell majorly out of uh, favor. Uh, this would certainly be true in the 20th century. Uh, so I know I was a philosophy major starting in 1970, and I was exposed to Stoicism but only to Stoic logic. So they actually had another, they had other things going in their logic. Uh, they were uh, famous for some of their discoveries of, of principles of reasoning. And that's what we studied about them. And the rest, it was just out there. And yeah, they were doing something. But uh, who knew and who cared? Um, then, and this would be in the early parts of uh, the 21st century, there seemed to be a Stoic rediscovery process. And uh, people started realizing that there is actually something there that can speak to modern minds. Uh, and it was very, in, in my own life, um, the book I wrote before ri writing A Guide to the Good Life um, was a book called On Desire, Why We Want What We Want. And I was using that as as kind of a vehicle. So if you're a, if you uh, teach college and, and are writing books as part of that, one of the things you can do is figure out something you want to know more about and write a book about it because uh, then you you can advance your career, you can get uh, more pay, and you get to satisfy your curiosity. So I, uh, then a middle-aged man, had taken an interest in Zen Buddhism and I thought, well, what I'm going to do is uh, write a book on desire, and in the process I can investigate Zen Buddhism quite deeply. And then, for the sake of completeness, I need to investigate philosophy, uh, rival philosophies of life, philosophies for living, uh, and Stoicism was one of those. And so I took a look at it, and I realized that it appealed a lot more to me and my personality than Zen Buddhism did, not I'm not putting down Zen Buddhism. It's just that uh, for me, given my personality and given the way I think, it was just a natural. So I gave it a try. I came out of the book thinking, I'm going to become a Stoic. Um, and that's what I've done subsequently. And I've explored Stoicism in greater depth. And I've written about it because I wanted my own experiences to be... Uh, I wanted other people to share my own uh, ex uh, experiments and experiences because I'm thinking maybe it works for lots of people. And uh, there's evidence that, in fact, it does. So how does Stoicism compare to Zen Buddhism? What is the main separation between these two philosophies? Well, they share the same goal. So a philosophy of life uh, does two things. First of all, it tells you, uh, it, it identifies for you what in life is most worth having. Uh, and then the second thing it does is it gives you a, a, a strategy for attaining the thing of value. And what was striking to me is that both um, Zen Buddhism and Stoicism agreed 
that the thing in life most worth having was tranquility, which is a dangerous word because some people, when they think of tranquility, think of a zombie-like state where you simply aren't feeling anything at all. Uh, and that isn't what the Stoics, the Stoics had in mind or the Zen Buddhists. It's the absence in your life or relative absence of negative emotions, things like envy, fear, hatred. They had nothing against the experience of positive emotions, uh, in particular, uh, an emotion like delight. Uh, they were fine with that. And so that was, they agreed on the goal, but where they differ from Zen Buddhists is um, Zen Buddhists will be saying uh, that if you want to achieve that kind of tranquility, you can do uh, Zen exercises, and sometimes uh, you will achieve your moment of enlightenment the next day, and sometimes you'll uh, achieve it 30 years later. There's no telling. Uh, you've just got to hang in there, and you have to uh, uh, strive to attain enlightenment but without striving, because that will uh, reduce your chance. So it becomes a very complex equation. With Stoicism, it's, hey, here's some stuff to try, and you'll know in a few days whether it's working or not. And among the things you can try, uh, the one I, I just uh, mentioned before, is negative visualization. Uh, I know I tried it, and it immediately made a big difference it, in, in reorienting my my approach to living and, and the way I re responded to um, life's events. This is something you, you touch on a bit in your recent book, The Stoic Challenge. Uh, I think you've written that you use principles from Stoicism to deal with the setbacks in our daily life. So you have this negative visualization, I'm guessing, is, is one of these sorts of practices that we can use to handle daily life. Are there other... Uh, examples you can give us on how to deal with things like anxiety or stress? Well, anxiety and stress, um, these are things, uh, they're negative emotions triggered by a variety of fears that we have about losing uh, what we already have and fears about the future. So the um, Stoics were, were really big on when, when we think about our life, you think about the parts of your life you can control and the parts of your life you can't control. And the interesting thing is um, there are parts you have almost complete control over. So it makes sense for you to, um, to, to worry about those things. But then there's things you don't have control over, things you can't change. And it's foolish, utterly foolish to be worried about those. One of the things you can't change is your past. One of the things you can't change is what other people have said to you or done to you, it, because it's also the past. But you do have a um, very considerable degree of control over the future. And in particular, you have almost complete control over your own character. And so you can choose to develop certain character traits. Uh, and the Stoics thought that's, uh, that's within your power. And well worth doing, because the character traits you possess will uh, shape the world you see. Now, I know some of the fundamentals of Stoicism are elements like you shouldn't be offended, that offense is in the ear of the beholder. But is there ever a time and a place when there's value in being offended? When people should sort of get together and try to take control over things that may seem out of their control? 
Yeah, there's uh, two different things. First of all, uh, whether you're offended. So, um, you know, the Stoics, if somebody insults you, what's the best thing to do? Uh, so just as far as psychological strategies go, one of the best things to do is nothing at all. Because why did they insult you? Because they're trying to hurt you. And so what you do is you just carry on as if they hadn't spoken. And at first, they'll, they'll think maybe you, you didn't really hear them, and they'll repeat the insult. Uh, and then you, you continue to just carry on as, as if they'd said nothing. They end up feeling foolish. So it's a very powerful uh, technique. And if you're atop your game, what you can do is you can turn the uh, insult into something uh, to laugh about. And people hate it when you do that. They want their insults to be taken seriously. Um, but it's just a different way of approaching something that's uh, an everyday kind of experience. You know, you, we deal with other people, they say things. And then the question is, do we want to let it ruin our day or not? Now, I see a lot of tenets of Stoicism are that it's less about trying to achieve more and more about wanting less. I don't know if that's a fair characterization, but I've always wondered, does that affect one's ambition or goals in, in trying to accomplish that? We, we have to question at times what drives people to accomplish things, to push themselves to do more in their lives. And some of the reasons people do more are out of negative things, like out of insecurity or trying to prove themselves or ego or greed. But it's just to accomplish more. Is that sort of in direct contradiction to the concepts of stoicism of wanting less? I mean to say, how can we achieve a lot while wanting less? Yeah, and, and you've hit on another paradox there, because when you look at uh, the ancient Stoics, you might have thought, okay, so they're just going to be satisfied with whatever life they've got. They're just going to, to settle in and, and, and be uh, unremarkable people who blend in with the background. But when you look at individual Stoics, you encounter people like uh, Marcus Aurelius. Let's see, what did he do? Oh, that's right. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And, and you know, he, he uh, was a lifelong practicing Stoic. And the interesting thing is, so Stoics feel that they have a kind of social duty. So, um, you know, as a Stoic, you're going to um, look at the world around you and you're going to realize that... Um, that in many cases, people are making themselves miserable. There are choices such that if they made them uh, a bit differently, they'd be much happier. Seneca is another example of a Stoic who, again, should have been maybe a passive individual, uh, but he seems to have lived a good life. And if you, if you measure it in other ways, he was arguably the leading playwright, or maybe one of them, of his time. He was the ancient equivalent of a billionaire. He was the primary counselor to uh, an emperor. Uh, he was a scientist. He was a writer, an extensive writer. And so that whole notion of, okay, so stoicism is going to kill whatever kind of um, drives you have with, within you, those would be counterexamples to that. Um, but, you know, what happened is they accumulated what they had without craving what they had uh, because they had in many cases their impulses in control more than most people do um, they didn't spend uh, foolishly they didn't waste their their lives in frivolous ways and and as a result they had something to show for their lives 
Yeah, I, I mean, I guess when you say those examples, you could also argue that they were successful before Stoicism. So, I mean, is Stoicism a philosophy that appeals to people who are already successful? Or a philosophy that will make your average Joe, you know, much more successful and a happy person? Yeah, you have all sorts of examples. Um, Epictetus, uh, the Stoic philosopher, started out a slave who was lame because his slave owner had, had beat him. Uh, physically had beat him, and uh, he went on to become uh, one of the top four Roman Stoics, and that's, uh, that's, that's not remarkable. There's a sense in which wherever you are in life, Stoicism has something uh, to offer you, and if you're a slave, it has a lot to offer you, because you're going to deal with circumstances that are very challenging. Uh, and if you're the emperor, it also has uh, something to offer you. After saying that, though, I should add that it seems like some people are more uh, psychologically in tuned to Stoicism than others. Some people take to it like uh, ducks to water. I get emails from people who've read my books and who say, well, you know, I liked your books and all, but I already knew all this stuff. I, I, I kind of grew up a Stoic although I hadn't read the Stoics. So they just have a personality type that lends themselves to Stoic kinds of responses to, uh, to what happens to them. And although this is the beginning of a research project, but I, I suspect there are people who would be on the other side of the equation. And that is people who um, inherently worry and feel like they're not doing their job unless they're, they're worrying. So there's a really interesting question of the extent to which your choice of stoicism is affected by your own uh, psychological makeup. Yeah, you know, I've always felt more Epicurean myself, uh, I guess in regards to how to spend your life and taking pleasure in even day-to-day -day things, but also in just trying to find the moderation in them, and that once you indulge in something so much it becomes unpleasurable, then it's that's a natural stopping point to kind of maintain equilibrium in your life. But also, I, I, I personally felt very moved by Epicureanism with regards to handling one's fear of death, which I know Stoicism also has solutions for that fear. Yeah, uh, death for them is the final adventure. Um, and uh, so, you, you know, in the end of uh, the Stoic Challenge, I, I talk about uh, death and Stoics who, who died and you know, you have Seneca uh, trying to cheer up the people around him as he's uh, committing a state-mandated uh, euthanasia uh, that turned out to be slow and somewhat gruesome. Uh, and you have other cases of people being uh, led off to be executed. And, and again, at the end, their goal is, okay, so there's lots about this that I can't control. There's part that I can control. And one of those is just to watch very carefully the last moments of life and, and just with, because this is my chance, you know, I'll find out, I'll find out what uh, happens. Um, I don't think they believed, at least there isn't strong evidence, that they were banking on an afterlife, you know, that it doesn't matter because it's just the doorway that opens to a whole new existence. Uh, if it does, that's okay. If it doesn't, they're ready for that. Too. I always think it's a bit of a shame in a way that our 
Our modern lives are so separated from the natural phases of life because then we can fear them so much more because we're never exposed to them. Like, we don't interact with the sick and the dying and the being born. Most of us don't experience those things on a, on a regular basis. So it, it kind of gets relegated to the fearful box and, and white hospital somewhere. Yeah, and, you know, the way... Um, uh people die now would have been remarkably different from the way people would have died, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. A uh, hundred years ago, they probably would have died at a younger age. And um, without these extended, you know, efforts to keep them alive at any cost. And you, you got to wonder, is, is that really what we, what we want to be doing? Uh, Stoics were okay with suicide but not if other people relied on you for things. But as far as they were concerned, yeah, you know, when, when your, your day is done, then uh, why stick around? Um, and there were a number of, of interesting um, uh, suicides, some forced, uh, some unforced, but I throw in that qualification. Uh, as long as you are useful or can be useful to other people, you have a stoic duty to uh, fulfill those uh, to fulfill those duties and to, and to help them in the way you can. Yeah, I think the usefulness as a principle of Stoicism is one that not many people are very aware of as being a tenet of Stoicism. Uh, could you maybe uh, explain a little bit more about why we need to be useful? Um, we have insights that other people lack, or at least we think we do. That sounds uh, pretty pompous there. But, but we've, uh, we've figured out some things, and, you know, one of the things is just this basic principle. There's the part of our life we can control. Uh, there's the part of our life we can't control. One of the things we can control is our, our ambitions in life, our goals in life. And unfortunately, most people don't give their uh, ambitions and goals a whole bunch of thought. What they do is they assume that someone else has thought it out for them. So they look around themselves and see what other people want and what other people are working for. And then they convince themselves, well, surely that must be the thing of value. And so what do they do? Well, they, uh, they overspend. Uh, they uh, uh, take on commitments that they uh, are unlikely to be able to fulfill simply because they know it's going to make them look good. Um, and the Stoics said, well, that's, that's a fool's game. Uh, what you want to do is figure out something that is clearly within your grasp with a moderate amount of effort to attain. And one of those things is tranquility, because how do you, uh, how do you attain it? Uh, basically, you stop worrying about things you can't control, because you can't control them. So it's pointless anxiety that you're, uh, you're experiencing. Uh, and fixate on the things you can control and try best to choose the things that are going to make your life um, both worthwhile and, uh, and a relatively easy existence at the same time. Do you think there's this, a possibility that this sort of modern society that we live in gives us the impression that we have more control over things than we actually have control over? I think we live in this world where there's these flashy magazines and this is the way you're supposed to look and you can be rich and famous and the, the sort of American dream if you just work hard enough social mobility is possible 
Whereas maybe in reality, not everyone is going to look like Angelina Jolie and not everybody is going to be able to become famous. That, that success that we're aiming for is a large part luck. But so many people think it's in their control that we should worry about it because they're not able to see what's out of their control. Yeah, most people don't give it a whole lot of thought. It clearly isn't in our control. It seems to be when you look at people who have made it, who are rich and famous, that um, there's a huge element of, of luck involved there, first thing. And second thing is, they often aren't the happiest people around. And uh, so it truly is strange that we would take that as our goal. You know, that if only we had more money, if only we had more fame, we would suddenly find happiness. And then look around for people who have found more money and more fame and ask yourself, uh, whether they're happy. So you can work very hard on a goal that if you achieve it is likely to leave you no uh, better off than you were before or you can work on changing yourself and the things you've got in life you embrace them and you uh, you you value them. Uh, right now where I, I live I look out the window there's a blue sky. It's a wonderful blue sky. And I could take it uh, uh, completely um, for granted, uh, but I work on not taking it for granted. I work on not taking the people in my life for granted. I work hard on not waking up in the morning and having another, another day of life for granted. All of these things. And if you take that frame of mind, then uh, we live in a beautiful world. We live in a, an incredible world. Uh, world. Uh, the book I wrote before Stoic Challenge is titled uh, You, A Natural History, and it's a scientific explanation of how uh, we came to exist, how uh, our planet came to exist, how the universe came to exist, and how we came to exist on it. And uh, for me, it's just this breathtaking adventure, the, the series of things that had to happen for us to be here is spectacular and just uh, entirely uh, unprobable, improbable, and yet here we are. And isn't that great? And that's one approach you can take to things. And the opposite is, oh man, I'm, I'm just the most miserable person around because other people have stuff I don't have. Um, that's a loser's game. And um, we fortunately have choice on whether we're going to allow ourselves to play that game or not. So we aren't forced to play. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had a, a life or death moment where I almost died. And it's interesting because after an event like that, your mentality changes so much more in regards to taking life for granted. You know, it's like you sort of make this parallel moment in your life and you're like, well, I could easily be dead right now, but I'm not. So... I don't know, I only wish there was a way to teach people that easily without them having to have a near-death experience. Uh, and maybe that's why they need to read Stoicism. It can kind of give the same sort of effect. Yeah, you see, you see pictures of people whose, whose house has been ruined by a tornado or a hurricane or whatever. And, you know, you see them clutching their family members on top of the ruins and saying, you know, tearfully, well, I've got everything that matters. And then, and then the thought that always occurs um, to me when I see that picture is, you know, you should have known that before, before the hurricane actually hit, um, that what you've got is a lot. 
but we, we devalue whatever we've got. If we've got it, surely it can't be that great. Um, and again, the stoic insight is, well, here's a, a thing you can do. It's going to take you a, a few seconds a, a day on a, on a daily basis. Just think about the things you've got. And think about losing the things you've got. Uh, and it does have this dramatic uh, effect of making us, if only for a time, really, really appreciate them. Think about the people in our lives if we lost them. Uh, think about our house if we lost it. Think about your job. You may not like your job. Well, think about not having your job. And you can go through the whole uh, list. And think about your health. Um, uh, think about your tongue. Uh, so I was reading the other day about people who um, develop uh, cancers and have to have their tongue removed. Uh, you know what? I've taken my tongue for granted every single day of my life, but I don't anymore because it's really, really not good to be missing your tongue. And yet there it is. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just marvelous? And I'd be the, the dumbest guy on the planet to simply take that for granted because it's a miracle. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Classical Wisdom members can listen to the entire podcast with William B. Irvin on classicalwisdom.com. You can find Dr. Irvin's books, including Stoic Challenge and A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, on amazon.com.